The following sermon was delivered by Rev. Laurel Gray at the Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society of Westboro, Massachusetts. When I first started seminary a whole 10, maybe 12 years ago, I thought theology was kind of boring. I even went so far as to say this to my academic advisor, and bless her for keeping a straight face. I thought I was interested in people and how we operate, how community changes us and the world, and I thought that wasn't theology. I have since changed my mind on the theology front. Despite the word suggesting it's only about God, the theos part, I now think of theology as the systems of meaning and beliefs and values hidden in our lives. So it's actually really important to look at how those systems of meaning and beliefs and values, to look at them because they inform how we live and how we establish our priorities, and they are also deeply bound up with issues of power. So today we're going to consider two theological frames, two ways of looking at the world to make meaning after traumatic or violent events. The first is redemptive suffering theology, and the second is post-traumatic wisdom. And we're going to go looking for the power and ideas of what is good in both. And as always, I'm not going to tell stories of specific violent things or describe them. Let's start with redemptive suffering theology. I'm willing to bet that the term is new to many or most of you, but that the thing itself is not. I'm sure we're all familiar with the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We've heard this, right? Be it in a Kelly Clarkson song or the praise we receive for having endured some great suffering. That experience made you so much stronger. How many have you been on the receiving end of that kind of praise? It always makes my skin crawl. Yes, it is possible to develop a greater sense of resilience or strength or wisdom after suffering. We're going to get there in a minute. But let's really examine what's going on with this redemptive suffering thing first. So the term redemptive suffering quite literally means that we are redeemed by our suffering. So something was wrong with us, we encountered some kind of violence or harm, and then we were redeemed. It's gross, right? Because implicit in this framework is the idea that violence is purifying, and whoever has suffered needed to be purified. That horrific thing that happened to you, it made you cleaner, it made you better. So then also, if you are violent towards someone else, It's to teach them a lesson. It's for their betterment. Do you see how dangerous this can be? Can you see how the power is operating in this? How improvement is forced upon us by an outside power that is fully justified in its use of violence? How that violence or traumatic loss is framed as if it's kindness? Now, what if we take that idea and scale it up? move beyond the one-to-one of a person-to-person dynamic, and apply this idea to a bigger population. What if, say, we let redemptive suffering theology inform how we teach American history? 
I'm sure many of you heard about how Florida was trying to make schools teach that slavery was good for enslaved people because it gave them job skills, right? It's horrific. That's redemptive suffering on a communal scale. Or what if we scale up even further? What if an entire nation is justified in their use of violence because the violence is purifying the land of something or someone it has deemed undesirable? Redemptive suffering theology is a necessary cog in the machine of colonialism and imperialism. It not only justifies harm and disempowers on the individual personal level, it also lives at the heart of genocide and ethnic cleansing. So I hope it is clear that I am fundamentally and wholly against redemptive suffering theology. So that's the one. It is also true that we can develop greater wisdom and insight after traumatic experiences. And this on the surface sounds similar to redemptive suffering, but let's go looking for the power dynamic. Post-traumatic wisdom was a term developed by mental health practitioners that describes the phenomenon of people experiencing greater wisdom or clarity, a deeper sense of meaning after a traumatic event or events, after healing. Post-traumatic wisdom does not always occur, but it is possible. So within this frame, where does the power lie? Where does the positive change come from in this post-traumatic growth? It's internal, right? It's the power of the human spirit, that source of life that lives inside us, that we experience in relationship with those around us. As Brianna West said in our reading, the healing is how you gradually allow your own soul to drip into your days again. Even on a purely physical level, the strength of our bodies is not imparted upon us by the dumbbell lifted or the distance run. The strength is created when our bodies knit themselves back together in response to stress. The strength is in the knitting of the muscle, in the growing back into wholeness, not in the breaking. So if post-traumatic growth is possible, it means that violence doesn't have the last word. It means that we don't need to be purified in order to be good. Goodness is inherent and it is always possible. And we know from research on trauma that having meaningful connections with others is key to healing. We know that care and kindness can transform the physiology of a traumatized body. So do you see how this is a very, very different way of making meaning? There's also more room inside this framework because we've disconnected growth from this idea of cause and effect. It is true that sometimes horrible things happen or are done to us, and there is no meaningful outcome that we can articulate. And that's okay. Healing takes time. Meaning-making takes time. And we know from the impacts of intergenerational trauma that sometimes it takes lifetimes to digest violence. Post-traumatic wisdom is neither a given nor is it required. You don't have to be an inspiration story. It's okay if you haven't mined some golden nugget out of that unspeakable thing. Sometimes the hard thing is just hard. So please don't compound it with guilt 
or shame or expectation. The voice telling you that you you should have something to show for that horrible thing, that's redemptive suffering, talking. And we get to say no. Post-traumatic wisdom, on the other hand, reminds us that the suffering does not ultimately control us. In a post-traumatic wisdom way of looking at the world, the thing with ultimate power to remake the world is not violence. It's connection, it's care, it's life's insistence on returning and love's refusal to break. So what happens if we scale that up? I think of the old words from Mr. Rogers, when bad things happen, look for the helpers. I think of communities rallying to care for each other after catastrophe. I think of parents whose children were killed in school shootings, standing up to lawmakers and gunmakers and lobbyists, insisting on change. I invite you to notice these kinds of moments in the world around you. Because post-traumatic growth at scale is world building. It's infusing life and an ethic of love back into the broken places. So we have these two theological frames, one that holds violence as an ultimate power for good, and one that holds love and care and kindness as an ultimate power for good. And I invite you to notice them as you move through the world. Notice especially when redemptive suffering is being invoked and wonder why. And I invite you to consciously try to shift to a framework built around an ethic of love. Because this is the task of faithful living, noticing where we align our own power and our own lives and course correcting when we stray from our deepest values. I've come to know that theology is not some dusty, boring relic. It's the beating heart at the center of how we live and how we thrive. So may we choose well. Amen and blessed be. And I'll close with um, the blessing that I read during the prayer and meditation portion of our service. This is called A Blessing for the Dark. When the shape of your world crumbles, when you find yourself lost in the dark, I hope you take your time. I hope you listen for the sound of snow, try to taste the sun as it casts sharp shadows over you. Remember, there is space here. Your body still knows how to breathe, how to heal, how to recall your wholeness. When the shape of your world crumbles, I hope you tell the truth about the wreckage, at least to yourself. And maybe when the time comes to someone else. I hope you dig deep enough into your faith that you find fertile ground under the rubble of what was broken. When the shape of your world crumbles, when you find yourself lost in the dark, I hope you discover embers of your forgotten power. I hope you remember parts of yourself you didn't know were lost, and I hope you welcome them home. Amidst that echoing silence, in that still open place, I hope you plant yourself beneath the rubble and wait for spring to grow in your soul for the lavender twilight to remind you of the life you found in the dark. Amen.
If you're looking for more resources about these two theological frames, the book about redemptive suffering is called Proverbs of Ashes. It was written by Rita Nakashima Brock and Reverend Rebecca Ann Parker. Um, This is a book specifically about redemptive suffering and the dangers of it. Um, This book does specifically tell the stories in detail of the author's traumatic experiences in life. Um, So it is both potent um, and read it if you're in the space to receive that. The two books that I would recommend about post-traumatic growth are one is called What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu, um, and the other one is by Dr. Perry and Oprah, um, and it's called What Happened to You, and both talk about the way that trauma exists in the body and moves intergenerationally, um, and about this phenomenon and possibility of post-traumatic wisdom. So all are good resources. So go in peace. Thanks for listening. For more information about what's happening at UUCSW or for ways to get involved, visit us online at uucsw.org. All are welcome.